Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What does it mean that God foreknew people? This answer and more in today's episode. Welcome again to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. You can always email me, Doctrine four, that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at the real bear Martin. Now, uh, today, let me, this, today's episode builds on last week's episode. And we talked about the eternal decree of God. And we also talked about, you can think of God's will in two basic categories. Okay. His decretive will is based on his eternal decree. Okay. And that will is sure it will not change. Um, that has that is what God has decreed from before the foundation of the earth. Okay. And so it will not change. That is God's decree. So it is unconditional. It is based on on God's sovereignty. Um, and so so that's the decretive will of God. Okay. And listen to last week's episode if you need more more details there. But basically, from the Christian standpoint, we are to trust the decretive will of God, his secret will. Okay. We we cannot know these things. We are to trust that God is in control and we are to trust his decretive will, but we are to obey the other type of uh, the other category of God's will, his preceptive will. His preceptive will is based on his precepts or laws or commands. And this is the will of God that has been revealed to us, okay? And so we are to obey God's preceptive will, and we are to trust God's decretive or secret will. We are to trust that God has a plan, but we're not to worry about that a whole lot as far as what we're to do day to day. We are we are to trust that, and then we are to seek to obey the preceptive will of God. Okay, the re- the reason that we need to think about God's will in these categories is because as you read Scripture, there are you you need these in order to properly understand the text. Okay, so for the decretive will of God, there's several verses out there, but uh, one example, First Corinthians one one says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, okay? So he was called by the will of God. Paul says in, in Galatians 1 that he he was, that God called him and knew him before he was born, that he would be an apostle, okay? And so this is, this is the decretive will of God. God foreordained that it would happen, okay? Now, the preceptive will of God, uh, an example of that could be seen in 1 John 2.17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, okay? So this is talking about obeying God's commands. If this was talking about the decretive will of God, well, everybody has to obey, um, to, so to speak, the decretive will of God. It, it will not change. Um, and so that it just doesn't, it wouldn't make sense with this verse, okay? And so this is clearly talking about the preceptive will of God, the revealed will of God. Another example, 1 Peter 4.2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
So living to obey God's preceptive will. And my favorite verse on the topic of God's eternal decree and what man is responsible for, those types of things, is Genesis 50, 20. I think meditating on what is taught in this verse is very important to help the Christian understand how to, how to deal with these uh, concepts of God being eternally in control of all things, yet man also being responsible for the choices he makes. So Genesis fifty twenty. this is Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. God uses that and Joseph will rise to be second in command over all of Egypt, okay? And so Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, this is Joseph talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All right, and and I I said earlier that God used this to get Joseph to uh, to second in command, but truly God meant it for good. It was not that God turned it into something good, but God meant it for good. He decreed before the foundation of the world that Joseph's brothers would make the free choice to sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph's brothers are responsible for their evil actions, okay? Yet, at the same time, God meant those actions for good. He didn't—the Bible, the Bible verse does not say he, he figured out a way to turn it into something good. No, he decreed that it was for good, okay? So this is part of God's eternal plan, all right? Now, um, as we were discussing this last week in Sunday school class at church, a few questions came up, and that's what we're talking about this week. So the first one I want to address is this idea that if God has decreed all things that come to pass, then why not use a coin flip for every decision in life? Okay, Proverbs 16.33, and I talked about this last week, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, my answer to this would be that to think that you should just flip a coin and whatever it lands on, that's the the uh, the will of God, that would be mixing or confusing the decretive will of God and the preceptive will, okay? We are instructed to trust the decretive will of God, but we are responsible to obey the preceptive will of God. I've mentioned this verse several times, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Okay, why? The, the, the text is asking why, and it answers it, that we may do all the words of this law. So the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children that we may obey them. We are supposed to obey the preceptive will of God. So you could not hold a coin and say, should I steal this merchandise or not? Heads, yes, tails, no, and whatever the coin lands on, that's the will of God. Well, in a sense, yes, that would be the decretive will of God. But that does not mean that you are obeying God just because it lands on, yes, you should steal this merchandise. No, you are responsible for obeying the preceptive will of God. Okay, and so the the result of the coin flip is part of the decretive will of God, but that does not mean that you are innocent of of what that coin flip would tell you to do. Okay, hopefully you're you're tracking along there. Again, you are held responsible for obeying God's preceptive will, His laws, His commands. So in the Ten Commandments, Commandment number eight says, "You shall not steal." 
So it doesn't matter if you flip a coin and heads is yes, you should steal this merchandise. That that is not the way you decide God's will, okay? So you you have to obey the preceptive will of God. Now, that's in in a sense, that's the easiest part of this question because you know, we're we're talking about stealing versus not stealing. And so anybody who is reading the Bible, that that should be a very easy answer as to what is the preceptive will of God. But one may ask, what about if I'm stuck between two good choices? And a, a great example of this would be the Christian high schooler who is is thinking about what college they should attend. And maybe it's maybe they have two or more good options, okay? And so uh, is it okay to f- simply flip a coin and trust uh, God in this situation? Well, there are some examples of of casting lots or you know so what 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 we would think of as more like a coin flip. There are some examples of this in scripture. In the Old Testament, one example that that comes to mind would be Achan. So the Israelites defeated Jericho, a very very strong fortressed city. And so this was like a a miraculous win. Again, God made the walls fall down after the Israelites marched around the city several times. So this was a miraculous victory for them. And God told the people, do not steal anything. Do not plunder the, uh, the city of Jericho. Well, Achan did. Achan took some treasure from Jericho and hid it in his tent. And so in the next battle, when the Israelites go out to to defeat Ai, a very small city, one that they should easily overtake, they they are uh, beaten. And so it's revealed to them that there's a sinner in the camp, basically. There's, there's a reason that God is not fighting for them right now uh, against the city of Ai. And so they cast lots. They get they start with the 12 tribes, they cast lots, and it whittles it down. And then eventually, through the process, they isolate Achan and his family as being the ones who are are disobedient, okay? Um, and so, so there's several examples of casting lots to um, get knowledge that no one would have in any other way, okay? And throughout the Old Testament, and it's you know, it's approved by God. This is this is the way that that they uh, were instructed to do it. Now, in Act, that's the Old Testament. In Acts one verses twenty three through twenty six is where you can get more of a full story. But basically, the apostles are seeking to replace Judas, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. They're looking to replace him, and they the decision is between two godly men, Justice and Matthias. Both of these men are, are seem qualified, and so they cast lots to determine who should be the one selected to join the official group of the apostles. Acts one twenty six, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, here's what's interesting. Just in case you think that I'm arguing that we should be flipping coins to determine God's will, um, I am not, okay? What's interesting is the very next passage talks about the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and, and the believers. So casting lots is not mentioned again in the New Testament. 
I think flipping a coin to determine God's will, even if it's between two good decisions. Now, I'm no longer talking about should I steal or not steal. I'm talking about seemingly two good decisions. Flipping a coin to determine God's will is, I believe, a rejection of much of the Bible's instructions for the believer. Our decisions should be based on prayer and fasting, on seeking out God's wisdom in His in, in the Bible, in God's Word, in seeking godly counsel from other believers. That is how we're supposed to make important decisions based on what the Bible teaches for the believer. So flipping a coin is, is this shortcut which I think takes away from many of the blessings that the believer would experience in prayer and fasting and reading God's word and counseling with other believers, there is great. Uh, there, there's a great blessing in struggling with that decision and seeking out what what is God's will in this instance. Okay, in being patient enough to to wait on God to give you clarity. As a, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit working inside of you. The Holy Spirit applies the truths from God's Word. So you you study God's Word. You pray. You fast. You seek the other, the other wisdom from godly believers. That is all um, just an overwhelming testimony in the New Testament of, of how we're supposed to deal with uh, difficult decisions. What if the—I think about the Bereans, okay? Uh, what if the Berean passage read this way? So this is, just to give you a context, Paul and Silas, um, they they are preaching in Thessalonica, and the leadership there hates them and, and is condemning them and, and, and wants to kill them, basically. And so Paul and Silas are snuck out of Thessalonica in the night, and they flee to Berea. Now, in Berea, they kept doing what they do. They go to this local synagogue, and they start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse, uh, verse uh, Acts 17, verse 11, says this, But what if it read this way? Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's talking about the Jews in Berea. They received the word, that is, the gospel that Paul and Silas were preaching, with all eagerness, and flipped a coin to see if these things were so. Now, that is not, <laughs> that's obviously not what the verse reads. Rather, it says they, exam- they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, we, we the Bereans are praised in scripture because they examined what Paul was saying. They compared it to what was taught in scripture. And, and so they were examining these things. They trusted that God would reveal the truth as they examined Scripture. And so that's that's the way I believe we should approach um, decisions as well, okay? So my advice, and I believe it's biblical, is when facing a difficult decision, because both options may seem good, it's to pray more, fast more, study your Bible more, seek godly counsel from fellow believers. God will use this for His glory and also for your sanctification, okay? That brings me to my next point. A lot of people, when, when we think about uh, how can I know the will of God for my life, uh, again, think about a high schooler, one you know, to, trying to decide on what college to go to. How can I know the will of God? Well, the the assumption there is that one college is God's will for this high schooler, and all other colleges are outside of God's will. Like God has this perfect plan for us, and we need to try to stay on that. And we, but we don't know what it is, and we we're you know we're just struggling trying to stay on that. 
uh, on that path and go to this exact college that God has for us, and anything else is, is outside of God's will. That's not the proper way to think of it. I, that, again, that is confusing the decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God. We are, as believers, we seek to obey the preceptive will of God, okay? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 and 3 says this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then as you keep reading, Paul calls them to abstain from sexual immorality, to live a life of holiness and honor, brotherly love, to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, that is to, to be diligent in your job. And so it is, it is your sanctification. That is God's will for your life. Will you be set apart? Will you grow in Christ's likeness in whichever decision you make? Okay. And so that is how we have to look at at difficult decisions, we want to make sure that we, whatever we choose, that we are growing in holiness, okay? And so it's you can't think of one specific college as being God's will for your life and everything else is wrong. No, God's will is that you would grow in Christ-likeness. And so if is there a college where you are more likely to grow in Christ-likeness than another college? Well, maybe that helps you narrow down your choices, okay? So that is the the will of God, okay? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I think this is a very popular set of verses here, but it applies to this situation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? So you seek to grow in holiness. You seek to obey the preceptive will of God, and and then that that will guide you on on proper decisions to make. Okay? So don't flipping a coin is is trying to bypass all of those things, and, and I do not believe that is biblical, okay? Now, the next thing that I want to cover uh, would be this idea of what does it mean to be foreknown by God? When we talk about the eternal decrees of God, obviously that involves uh, God's elect, God God predestinating uh, people to, to be saved, and then also because there is a group that is saved, and the Bible clearly talks about non-believers going to hell, there's people that are not not part of that elect predestined group, okay? And so how how are we to understand this idea of of God, of God's foreknowledge, okay? Now that that word, the verb form is prognosco, okay? Prognosco or prognosco, that is the Greek word and gnosko means to know, okay? And pro, you can think of pro or or like pre beforehand, okay? So it would be to know beforehand. This is the most basic meaning of the word, and and it's used this way in the New Testament, okay? It's to to simply know information beforehand. Um, the first example here, by the way, prognosco is is used six times in the New Testament. Okay, the first two that I'm going to talk about. God is not the one that is foreknowing. It, it's a, a human being, okay? And so here, the first example is Acts 26.5, and Paul is, 
is on trial before King Agrippa. And Paul says this, they, that is the Jews, the Jewish leadership that's condemning Paul, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul is saying, they know, those Jewish leaders know that I have lived as a Pharisee. Okay? Now, who is the subject? Who is doing the the foreknowing here? By the way, when the verse says they have known for a long time, that is the English translation of prognosco, okay? They have known for a long time. They they have known beforehand, okay? So, who are who's the subject here in the sentence that the the people that know beforehand, it's the Jews, okay? And what have they known for a long time? They have known information about Paul, that that he lived as a Pharisee. So they knew before this trial, they have known before this trial existed, before they condemned Paul, okay? They knew that he used to live as a Pharisee. They knew that beforehand. That's what the the verse is, is telling us. Now, the second example is found in 2 Peter 3.17. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So again, who is the subject here? Peter says, You therefore, it's like a command, You therefore, beloved, the beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that, that you are not carried away. Now, what do th- this be- this beloved group, this group of of believers, okay, what do they know beforehand? Well, we have to look at the verses before that, and this is where Peter is talking about uh, Paul. Some of the things that Paul has written are difficult to understand, and ignorant and unstable people are twisting those scriptures, okay? And so that Peter says, he gives them that information, and he says, you therefore, knowing this beforehand, so you you already know that ignorant and unstable people are twisting the scriptures. Because you know this beforehand, as you live life, don't be, um, don't be carried away with those errors, okay? So again, these people know information beforehand. They know that, that some people are twisting uh, the, the writings of Paul, okay? So those are the two examples where the subject is not God. God is God is not the one in those verses doing the foreknowing, the the prognosco. Okay. Now the the subject and also the the object is information. The subject knows beforehand uh, certain information. Okay. So that's the basic structure there in those verses. Okay, so the meaning of prognosco is pretty straightforward there. They simply know information beforehand. However, in regards to God's knowledge, okay, to say that God knows some information beforehand is pointless in a way. Of course, He knows beforehand, He knows all things. But there is a different way the Bible uses the word know or foreknow when speaking of God as the one who is doing the foreknowing, okay? The following examples are from the Old Testament and speak of God God knowing in a special way, okay? Amos 3.2, God says, you, he's talking to the nation of Israel here, you, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, surely God knows in the very basic sense of the word, 
information or, or that all that, that there are other families besides Israel who live on the earth, okay? So th- that's a given that God knows that. So, so why use this word, you only have I known? What is this talking about? This is, there, there's a special sense that God knows Israel uh, apart from just knowing information about Israel, okay? Now, another verse here, Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, or that is to, to set apart. I set you apart. Now, in the in Hebrew, a lot of times we see this parallelism. You see this a lot in Proverbs, where it's basically, it says the same thing in two slightly different ways, okay? And so, before I formed you in the womb, the parallel of that is before you were born, okay? And then the and then it says before I formed you in the womb I knew you and the parallel of I knew you in this verse would be I consecrated you or I set you apart. And and then the verse continues I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah before God formed him in the womb he knew Jeremiah. And before you were born, he con- before Jeremiah was born, he consecrated or set Jeremiah apart that he would be a prophet to the nations. Uh, so, so there, there's a special sense in this verse that God knows and has has set apart Jeremiah for a special purpose. Okay. Now, th- there's similar language to this by Paul in Galatians 1.15. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. So this is this is Paul defending his own apostleship. He uses similar language here to that of uh, the verse I read about Jeremiah. Lastly here, and God is not the subject, but this is also a great example of the special way it, that we that the word know can be used, okay? Genesis 4.25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Now, does this mean that Adam forgot who Eve was or forgot that they were married or for, forgot information like that? No, th- th- there's a special sense, a special relationship um, implied here. Adam knew his wife again, and because of this knowing his wife, she bore a son and called his name Seth. So there, there's a, a special sense in uh, this knowledge here. So when the object is a person and not information, the meaning of no or for no implies a special relationship. Okay? Let me say that again. When the object, when, when the object of what is being foreknown, when the object is a person or group of people and not information, then the meaning of no or for no implies a special relationship. So there are two common interpretations of the foreknowledge of God. One, and and I disagree with this interpretation, but one is that God looks through the corridors of time, okay? So some people believe God's foreknowledge means God looks through time and he sees what people are going to do, and in that way he knows the future and he knows the people who will believe and who will not believe, okay? And then he decides to uh, elect the people he knows are going to choose him anyway. Okay. Now, 
I think interpreting the passage in this way is an attempt to rescue God's character, so to speak, okay? So we don't want God to be seen as some sort of divine dictator who's simply picking who lives and who dies, okay? So we 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 say things like, well, God saw, he looked through the quarters of time, he saw who would choose him, and that is why he elected them to salvation, and this is what God's foreknowledge is, okay? So that that's one interpretation, okay? Now, I think that God, seeing God's election in this sense seems pointless. Why does God have to elect people who are going to choose him anyway? All right? Um, so so I, I do think there's some weaknesses here, and there's another main one in a few verses. Um, but thinking about election and God looks through time and sees what people are going to do and then de- you know decides to elect them to salvation this is disagrees with Romans 9:11 this is talking about Jacob and Esau I spent a lot of time on this verse last week though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so this is clearly God's God's election is based on God's unconditional sovereignty, his his free will. God is ultimately free, okay? And so we we try to use this foreknowledge of God, God looking through the corridors of time to make God seem like a nicer, uh, you know, less sovereign, honestly, less sovereign God. Now, think about it this way, because people will try to use this argument to to defend God and say, well, God would, you know, God never sends anyone to, to hell. It's, it's only people who've rejected him. And that is true, but they're they're using this foreknowledge in a way to sort of soften God's sovereignty. But it, even even that, all you, all they're doing is pushing the the line just a little further back. Because if God looks through the quarters of time, if this was actually true, that God looks through the quarters of time and sees that some people are going to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and some people are not. If he sees all that before he chooses to create anything, the second he chooses to create that, then he has condemned those people who would not believe to hell. He knows what they're going to do. And and God's knowledge does not change. And so all it's doing, it's trying to soften the sovereignty of God, but all you're doing is just pushing the line back just a little further. God still freely chose to create the the world and the and and the people that would uh choose to to love him and those who would choose to reject him. So it's just pushing the line back. And and, and again, I do not think that that is the accurate way to think of God's foreknowledge. Now, the the interpretation that that I would the meaning that I would uh, propose as being true is that God's foreknowledge it it involves a special relationship that God chooses to enter into with some people. Uh, William Hendrickson defines it as God's divine active delight. Okay, God's divine active delight. Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, again, this is that word prognosco, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Now, foreknowledge, Hendrickson, William Hendrickson here in his commentary on Romans says this, quote, foreknowledge mentioned in Romans 8.29 refers to divine active delight. It indicates that in his own sovereign good pleasure, God set his love on certain individuals, many still to be born, gladly acknowledging them as his own, electing them to everlasting life and glory, end quote. So there are a total of, like I said earlier, there are six total times that this word, prognosco, is used in the New Testament. And when talking about human foreknowledge, the meaning speaks of humans knowing information beforehand. Okay. However, when this word has God as its subject, when God is the one foreknowing, it is not God knowing information, but rather people or groups of people. All right. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, points out Paul, and he's speaking of Romans 8.29, he says, Paul does not say that God knew anything about us, but that he knew us. So again, when God is the subject, when God is the one for knowing, it is not referring to intellectual knowledge, but rather it is God entering a relationship beforehand, or choosing beforehand, or determining beforehand. Okay, that's the way that we should think about the meaning of God's foreknowledge. In Romans 11.2, it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Again, this is not information that God knows. It is a people that he foreknew. The next verse where foreknowledge is, is used, prognosco, is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this is just the greeting uh, for, for Peter's letter to the elect exiles, okay? And, and they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God's foreknowledge is another way of saying his definite plan. It will happen, okay? He chose for it to be so. And just in case you may be thinking that this foreknowledge here is God looking through the corridors of time, thinking about Jesus being crucified, let's read the last example of foreknowledge, or God's foreknowledge in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So again, here here's language about Christ being sacrificed as the lamb, okay? Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, what's really important here is who was foreknown? Jesus was foreknown, okay? Verse 20 says, he was foreknown. When was he foreknown? Before the foundation of the world. So this is the eternal decree of God. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was foreknown. Now, if we are to uh, take the meaning of foreknown, that God looked through time and saw that Jesus would be crucified on a cross, 
to forgive people's sins, then then this would this would mean that God saw Jesus becoming incarnate and dying on the cross, and and so having that knowledge now, seeing all this is going to take place, then God decided to foreordain that it would happen. Okay, that that's a I think that that's an improper view of God's foreknowledge. Rather, I believe the Bible teaches that God. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God ordained that it would happen that way. Okay? So it was God's choice. God is not seeing this all happen in the future, looking through the corridors of time and and then deciding to decree it. All right? John Feinberg, in his Systematic Theology, talks about this. Uh, the section is called The Decree and Foreknowledge, and the, the book is called No One Like Him. This is a fairly lengthy quote, but I think he, he really nails down the argument that I'm trying to make here, okay? He says, quote, Peter writes about Christ's sacrifice for our redemption. That's verses 18 and 19. In verse 20, he adds that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for our sake. Now, what would it mean to say that God was mentally aware from before the world's foundation that Christ would be the sacrificial lamb? How could God foresee Christ being the Redeemer without having chosen it to be so? If the point is simply prescience or, or that God, again, this is a, that would be another way of saying information, that God looked through time and saw this information. If the point is simply prescience, we must ask the basis of this. In the case of foreknown human actions, one could argue that God chose them not because he sovereignly willed them to occur, but because he foresaw that we would do them anyway. But how could that be the case with God foreseeing his own actions? Are we to imagine that God and Christ had not decided to send Christ as Redeemer, but then saw that Christ would become incarnate and die anyway? So they decided to place these actions in the decree. It is beyond reason to imagine that God first consults what he foresees himself doing before he ordains himself to do it. The point is rather that even before the world's foundation, God foreordained Christ as Redeemer. End quote. So in conclusion, I do not think that God's foreknowledge is him simply looking through the corridors of time and seeing what people would decide. Rather, his foreknowledge is is him choosing before the foundation of the world to enter into a special relationship with people. Now, another objection that people may raise when, when we talk about the eternal decrees of God, especially when it comes to God electing or foreknowing um, a, a group of people is that uh, th- this type of question may come up. Are you saying God's just up there randomly picking people to be saved and people to be damned like a divine lottery? So is basically, is God arbitrary? Is he is He just randomly picking some people to be saved and, and some to not be saved? Well, remember, we have to look at all these issues from a biblical perspective perspective. We have to be biblical. Most importantly, we have to be biblical, not philosophical. Philosophy, again, philosophy has its benefits. I'm not slamming philosophy or saying that you shouldn't take philosophy classes or any of that stuff. 
But philosophy is limited by man's reasoning ability. In philosophy, that, that is really the highest standard. If, if man's reason is your ultimate authority, then you will have difficulty with Christianity because man cannot reason up to God. God has to give revelation. He has to reveal himself to us. And so if revelation from God, the Bible, is your ultimate authority, then you need to rest in accepting what God has revealed. Uh, A great quote that I shared last week, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, faith is a readiness to submit oneself to the biblical limits. So is God arbitrary in, in his decisions? No, okay? The Bible clearly teaches us that. God's decisions are not random or arbitrary. Now, we do not understand the thoughts of God But we know that God does not do anything random or without purpose. As humans, we simply do not know all of God's purposes. And just because we cannot see or understand them does not mean they don't exist. So be assured, God does everything with purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all things are are according to God's purpose and his counsel, okay? This means he considers, he thinks about them, okay? It's It's not random, although we don't know all of God's purposes. So God is not arbitrary in anything that he does. Another objection to God's eternal decree would be, well, why should we pray and witness if it's all been decided anyway? Uh, First off, again, we think biblically, and the Bible tells us to, okay? And so that's why we should pray and why we should share the gospel with others. Also, God uses these means to save sinners. He declares the ends as well as the means. So he uses prayer to, to bring people to Christ. He uses prayer to heal the sick, all of those things. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So regeneration or being born again is 100% the work of God. You can have the best presentation of the gospel, the most convincing, best delivery, just the right amount of emotion and passion, but if you are preaching to a heart of stone, you will not get anywhere. So we acknowledge that, but at the same time, we are told to share the gospel because that's what the Holy Spirit uses in regeneration or, or being born again, okay? Um, and so that's that's what the Holy Spirit uses is the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word. First Peter 1, verses 23 through 25 say, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So how how are we born again? It's it's the power of the Holy Spirit is is implied here, but it's through the living and abiding word of God. So we we teach the word of God, we preach the word of God to all people. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So that is why we preach the gospel. God uses those things to save sinners, okay? Um, Now, 
lastly, why even tell us about the eternal decrees? God, if you know that we're not going to understand it anyway, why even tell us and then cause this controversy? People debating about uh, election and predestination, all this stuff. Why would you even tell us about it? Well, one, God tells us about his eternal decree for his glory. We, we should acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things. God is in control. And that gives that the second reason I have for God telling us about these eternal his eternal decree, it's for his glory and also for our comfort. No matter how crazy things seem to get, uh, no matter how unfair people treat us, we can rest assured that God has a, a purpose and plan in place. And and he, so he's not scrambling up around in heaven uh, trying to figure something out to, to make good on it. No, all of this is according to his eternal decree. The strongest passages about God's eternal degree, decree in the Bible are given with the purpose of comforting the believer and assuring them that God is in control. Uh, Romans 9, 6, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, and then he's going to go on to talk about God's uh, God's election, and then he says in Romans 11, two, uh, 11, 1 and two, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknew. So this is to to comfort the believer and also to glorify God. That's why we are told about the eternal decrees of God. So God is in control. He is never surprised, and he is working out his eternal decree. For a closing verse, this is a lengthy set of verses, but it, it has so—the last two weeks— these verses, there's so much in them to, that apply to what we've been talking about. And so it's Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 